So as Michael said, my name is Josh, <clears throat> and once again, it's, it's such a privilege, privilege to be here with you this morning, to be uh, a part of the community that says Jesus reigns and Jesus is king. And I have the privilege as well uh, as a, the daunting task of talking about this monster called marriage, right? <laughs> it can kind of be a beast, right? And, um, but before I say anything about it, I want to, I want to, bring up something. I want to recognize something. And that is, we all look at this topic with a lot of different experiences, a lot of different perspectives, right? Some of us here today are, are single and are ready to mingle, right? You're looking, <laughs> looking for that person, right? Some of you guys got your hair trimmed yesterday thinking this might make a difference tomorrow. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you, some of us have been single and we've been mingling for way too long, right? We're just tired of this ebb and flow, this frustration. Is there someone for me? God, is there, is, can I hope in this thing called marriage? Some of us are married. We've been married for a few years or we've been married for a few decades, right? The marriage veterans in the room, right? Some of us think of marriage and we think of it highly. We think of it wonderfully. It brings us joy, fulfillment, and then others of us, we think of marriage and we ask the question, what in the heck have I just gotten myself into? Who is this lunatic that I'm married to? Right? What? It's, it's completely different depending on our experience, right? Some of us have experienced wounds. We've experienced deep wounds, hurt, betrayal. We've experienced divorce. And when you, and you get that, you get that, wedding invitation in the mail, it doesn't bring a smile to your face, it brings pain. Some of us have even unfortunately experienced the loss of a spouse. They died, and you are a widow, and to think of marriage might be something to think of some sweet memories, but sometimes it's to think, to think of some very painful memories. And I say, I say all this just to, to realize, hey, we all come to this thing, this topic, with a lot of different views, opinions, and experiences. So the question for us becomes, is it worth it? Is it worth it for us to even talk about this? Is there any hope in this union between a man and a woman? And to go along with our series, is it possible that Jesus Christ can be the core? I think the essence of a marriage, is that even something to consider? Well, I think those kind of questions are answered, and they're answered in God's word. So if you have a Bible... If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, okay? Ephesians chapter 5. Go through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, and there it is, Ephesians, right there, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, okay? If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up right behind me. All right, we start reading God's word in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that, she, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Whoa. Whoa. A lot of things were just said. Some of them are really interesting and really cool, and some of them are really challenging. So we have to proceed very carefully. But before we even want to have an opportunity or the best chance to, to understand Ephesians chapter 5, we have to understand the whole thing. Context. Why did Paul write Ephesians? Why is this letter here? I think when we read it from beginning to end, we see that Paul is reminding the Ephesians what it means to be a Christian. Simply. What it means to be a Christian. What the death of Christ has done for you is given you a new identity. No longer are you identified by this or this or this. You're identified by Christ. This is God's grace that's been poured out on us. Right? The grace of God that's been freely given, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And it's because of this grace that our lives should look completely different. Because of what Christ has done for us, we should be living differently speaking differently, treating one another differently, treating our families differently. And if we could sum up Ephesians into one simple sentence, it would be this. The truth about what God has done in Christ should be reflected in the way that we live. Okay? The truth about what God has done in Christ should be reflected in the way that we live, in our conduct. Okay, so that kind of gives us a backstory gives us an intro into Paul's instructions to husbands and wives. And so we pick up in Ephesians 5, 22, and it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Right now, this, this verse is inextricably linked to the one right before it. In verse 21, it says, uh, and that's actually connected to verse 18. It's, in verse 18, it says, hey, be filled with the Spirit. And part of being filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So keeping Christ in mind, as I look out at each one of you, my goal, my, the nature of who I am in Christ is to submit to you. Whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is, a, is one of the definitions, one of the characteristics of a Christian. Okay, that's all fine and dandy. But it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? In verse 22... Wives, submit? Time out. Unsportsmanlike conduct on Paul. You're not, what? What? Surely he used the wrong word here. Doesn't Paul know that my wife and I are equally created in the image of God? Doesn't he know, doesn't Paul know 
that both men and women are loved equally before our God. How could he possibly use a word like submit? But we have to be careful. Because when I, when I, when I read this, I'm offended. Like, can I just be honest with you? When I read this text, specifically this one, out of more than it, most others, I'm offended at what Paul had to say. He sounds like a chauvinist. But we have to carefully define this word. We have to be very careful about what it means. And when Paul uses this in all of his writings, this word submission, I, I know this is a hot topic. I know that. But here's what I think Paul is saying with this word. Submission is a willingness to affirm and support a husband's leadership in the home. Okay? Submission is a choice that, we, that, that wives are making to submit to their husband's leadership in the home. Now, before you walk out the door, let's just think about it for a second. What we have to ask is, what does this mean? What does it mean for, to affirm and support a husband's leadership in the home? Is Paul saying that women don't have a say, that they can't speak their mind? Is Paul saying that husbands are the only ones who get to make the decisions around here, no ifs, ands, or buts? That's done. That's it. Husbands rule. That's it. Is that what he's saying? No, he's not. Absolutely not. In no way is Paul saying to wives that they need to forfeit their personalities. In no way is he telling them to forsake their creativity. He is not interested in squelching and, and, and crushing the beauty and the wonder and the glory of what it means to be a woman created in the image of God. He's not doing that. He's not, he's not getting rid of that. But what he is doing, what he is doing is he is saying that the duty, obligation, the responsibility of a marriage has been given to the husband. Okay? And we, and we see evidence for this. We see evidence for this right here in the, in the text, verses 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so now he takes this analogy and, and he turns it to Christ and he stays with Christ in the church for the rest of our time together. So get used to the word Christ tonight, okay? So... He's saying that husbands are the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. But again and again and again, when we read the word of God, we have to be asking the question, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? Well, luckily, fortunately, Paul has used this word twice already in this letter. So turn back a page or two to Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, if you have a Bible, turn just, just maybe one page back. Ephesians chapter 1, one, go to verse 19. And in this part of the letter, Paul is hoping for, he is wishing, he is, he is praying for the Ephesians that they would know something, that they would know something. They would know a certain reality. And here's what he wants them to know. Verse 19. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
So here in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that Christ as head of the church means that he has been given the church. God the Father has designated Christ as the leader, yes, as the authority of the church. Christ is the leader of the church. That's what Ephesians 1 says. Now let's jump over to the second time he uses the words, Ephesians chapter 4. So maybe turn one page back. And here, Paul is instructing the Ephesians to look like Christ, to imitate him in everything that they do, right? And we pick this up in uh, Ephesians 4, 15. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, for Christ to be the head of the church means that he is ensuring, he is guaranteeing that we are going to be nourished, that we are going to continually grow. So when we combine these two things, when we combine Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 and give somewhat of a definition, Christ as head of the church means that he is leading, he has authority, he is leading the church in ways that give it life and Nourishment. That's what it means for Christ to be the head of the church in Ephesians. To be leading the church in a way that gives it life and nourishment and growth. Okay, so in light of this, because of this, Paul is, is asking the wives of Ephesus. He's asking them to voluntarily support the husband's leadership in the home as he is spiritually leading her. He's asking wives to voluntarily give themselves to their husbands so that their husbands can lead them in the home. Now, what does this do really quickly? Just turn a quick page to the men in the room right now. The weight of the home is on us. It's on our backs, and it's heavy. But in the meantime, Paul is asking the ladies to affirm support, and in verse 33, we see respect their husbands as God has appointed them as leaders in the home, okay? Okay, Josh, you're cute. I mean, I'm, I'm partially offended, but whatever, I'll get over it. Um, how is this possible? Yeah, right. How, how can I possibly do this? You're not married to him right? I have no idea what it's like to be married to a man. No clue. No clue. But Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary to South America who now resides just a few hours away, wrote a book that I unashamedly read called Let Me Be a Woman, okay? And in this book, she describes uh, the relationship between a, a man and a woman to her daughter who's about to get married very soon, okay? And this is what she writes. And man, man, is this true. Somehow marriage has insinuated into women's cozy lives this unpredictable, unmanageable, unruly creature called a man. He is likely to be bigger, louder, tougher, hungrier, dirtier than a woman expects. Listen to this. She learns that what makes her cry makes him laugh. Can I get an amen? <laughs> he eats far more than seems necessary or even reasonable to a, man who or to a woman who never ceases her vigil against excess, excess weight. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's just be real. Men, you smell terrible. 
And right now at lunch, I could by myself go order a large meat lover's pizza from Domino's and not share it with any of you. Eat the whole thing. We eat a lot. We, we smell weird when we come back from the gym, right? How could, we, how could women possibly submit to knuckleheads like us, right? Well, the answer to that question is found in a little tiny phrase that we skipped over. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That phrase right there is going to hold this whole text together. The only reason we can think about this, the only reason it's possible, the only reason we, we should even consider this is because of the wife's relationship, not to her husband, but to Christ, the Lord, and the king who reigns. You see, a wife's relationship to Christ should not only inform, but it should define, should be the essence of her relationship to her husband. A wife's relationship to, not, uh, to, to Christ should not only inform, but it should also define her relationship to her husband. Women, have you not been redeemed in Christ? Has he not completely blotted out your sin? Has he not completely rescued you out of the muck of sin and taken you out of death and into life? He has made us alive together in Christ, Ephesians 2.5. He has taken us out of darkness. And he's brought us into the light. So how is it possible that you could submit to things like us? It's because God has revolutionized your life. Because Jesus is Lord of your heart, it's possible that Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 can happen. Because of the love of God that's been planted inside of you, by Jesus Christ himself. The gospel, right, the good news, the truth about what God has done in Christ should be reflected in the way that we live. That's what Ephesians is all about. Okay, so that's the, that's the call to, to the ladies. That's the call to the good-looking ones in the room, right? Now, what is the call to the other ones? What is the call to the men? What is our call? What is our responsibility? Well, Paul about to ask you to fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a very, very, very bold definition for Paul to use. But again and again and again, this is our third time now. What does that mean? What is, how? We have to ask ourselves the question when he says that, how has Christ loved the church? Well, we can go into every single book of the New Testament and even the old and find this. But let me just give you three quick examples. Okay? How has Christ loved the church, we ask? First Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found, and continued in trust. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
take this one, Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Or another. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. The life of a Christian husband is a life of laying himself down for his wife. You don't need to read a book. You need to read the text. The life of a Christian husband is a life of laying himself down for his wife. The only image that comes to mind, the only event that comes to mind is him being mutilated and embarrassed for our behalf. He was nailed to the cross that we might have forgiveness of debt. And we are free. Christ has loved the church, so husbands should love their wives in that way. In that way. See, this is the regular feature. This is the regular ethic of Christ toward us. He is constantly, overwhelmingly loving the church. So what husbands have a regular and hallmark feature of our lives being laying down our lives for her. Laying down our lives, sacrificing, serving her. See, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what this week has brought you. You get me here? It doesn't matter if she's been frustrating you. It doesn't matter if she's been annoying and getting on your nerves. It doesn't matter if things haven't gone the way you want them to go this week. The text doesn't care about that. You see, did Christ love you when you were godly? No. Christ loved you in spite of your ungodliness. Romans 5.8. Even if your wife isn't up to par this week, your absolute and my absolute conviction, when I think of Mandy this week, when I think of her, I must, must, must love her. I don't have any other thing that I'm commanded to do. That's heavy, right? That's, that's huge. That's, I mean, that, that's making me sink under the water. I can't stay above, right? That's how I feel. But look at the result. Look at what how Christ has loved the church is doing, right? So we continue. So husbands love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Continuing in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, what this is doing, that word that means that there's a purpose clause here. There's a, there's, our love has a purpose, husbands, men. Just like Christ's love has led to all of our holiness, just like Christ's death has led to all of our forgiveness, so should a husband's love lead to her being built up, her being strengthened, her flourishing, and her being honored. You see, when, we, when Christ says that he came to serve, you see, what, what, what is that? What does it mean to serve? 
It means to give someone else glory. It means to, to do something else for someone else. That's what, that's what service is. So the duty of a husband, the responsibility, the call of a husband is to honor our wives. That's, that's our purpose, to honor her. I got I to gotta let you in here to my, to my personal life now for a second. See, I, I read Ephesians 5, 21, 22 to 33, and my sinful nature loves to hang out at verses 22 to 24. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the boss. I'm the head of my wife. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm the one, capital O, right? I'm the one in my home. And I even, I even may be guilty of building a little throne for myself and sitting in it and saying, this is mine. This is mine. Perhaps you're guilty of the same. We have to remember. We have to remember that there's only one throne. There's only one who is in control. There's only one boss. His name is Jesus Christ, the King. See, when I think about the ultimate capital L leader of my home, when I think about the King who rules my marriage, it must be Jesus. So I will on my face. So I must get off of my throne. We must get off of our thrones and serve our wives. The best image of this that I can think of is John chapter 13, right? Jesus and the disciples, he washes their feet right before he's crucified, right? A powerful image, powerful image. And when we think of him, when we think of him getting down on his knees and washing their feet, is he still Lord? Is he still master? Is he still the boss? Yes. He is, without a doubt. Jesus never loses his authority, ever. But did he get down on his knees and wash their feet like a slave would a master? You bet he did. So ought husbands in a similar way bend over backwards for our wives. Let's pray. Let's continue. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Okay, so this imagery of Christ and the body comes back again. And two words that we want to really focus on right now are the words nourish and, and cherish. Right, so when Paul uses uh, this word nourish, there's a kind of a, a, a botany. Is it botanical? Is that what you say? I don't know. Is it... Uh, this, this uh, plant that you're, you think of a plant, right? A plant that's in the ground. And as a farmer or as, as somebody who's taking care of this, as a gardener, you're making sure that this, that this plant is going to grow. You're, gonna, you're making sure that nothing happens. You're making sure that you're keeping it in check. You're pruning things that don't need to be there. You're fending it off. And in the same way, husbands, listen to me. We want that little plant to become a tree. We want our wives to flourish. We have to fend off things that are coming into the marriage. We have to fend off things that are coming into the home. If there's anything that is leading her to sin, get rid of it. I have to do that for her. I have to do that for my wife. And let me tell you, I fail. I have failed in that. We have to nourish them. We have to protect. We have to fence this little plant off and make sure 
as she grows into something strong, really strong. The other word is cherish, right? Paul only uses this twice in all of his writings. Here, Ephesians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. And he talks about how, in, in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about how he came to them gently. He came to them gently as a nursing mother would her infant. And I shared this with the first service. I'm not trying to be weird here. Husbands, don't treat your wife like a, a, your, a mom would treat an infant. I'm not, don't go there. Please don't go there. Right, you know, don't do any of that. <laughs> anyway, um, just what, I, what it does mean, what it does mean, the context of both of these texts together show us is that to cherish means to be gentle, to be gentle. And one of the primary ways that uh, gentleness can take place in the home is right here, speech. Speech, are you being gentle? I have to constantly ask myself, because you get used to this person living with you, don't you? I have to constantly ask myself, am I being gentle with the way that I speak to her? Has sarcasm become the MO? Is that just what we do now? We just, we just destroy each other with these sarcastic jokes instead of build one another up. That's not gentle, that's destructive. We have to learn to be gentle, not only in our speech, but we have to be tender with her, caring for her. So this is the love of a husband toward his wife. It's an amazingly high and, and uh, provocative call. It's scary, almost. Right? So when we look at these few verses, we look at all of these verses, what is the text really telling us to do? How can we kind of shape this up into something that we can understand and walk out the door with? I think this is one way we can view it. Marriages that imitate Christ glorify him. Marriages that imitate Christ glorify him. See, we read in verses 31 and 32, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then listen here, verse 32. This mystery about the two becoming one is profound. And it's not talking about the husband and the wife. It's talking about Christ and the church. Wait a second. So this thing between a man and a woman isn't really even about the man and the woman. That's interesting. So when we all think about our individual lives, right? If you're married or single, it doesn't matter. Think, think, just think of you for a second as one person. You're telling a story. The, the life you're living is telling a story. The way you act, the way you speak, the way you, 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 you live your life, it's telling a story. The same thing is true about a marriage. Your marriage is telling a particular story whether you want it to or not. But the question must be, is my marriage telling the story of Jesus? Is the way that I'm treating Mandy. People see the way that I treat others to him. Do people see the way that I treat Mandy and say, oh yeah, he loves her like Jesus loves us. It's undoubtedly true. I want, I want people, both men and women in my community group, to be able to walk in the door and see it. I want them to be able to see it. Can they see it in me? Can they see it in Mandy? Do our marriages point and focus people toward him? 
I want people to see that I am completely hers and that she is completely mine so that others will understand that we, the church, are completely Christ's. So how does this work? How does this work? For each one of our marriages, for those who are intending marriage, maybe uh, wanting to get married, anybody in the room, how, how does this practically work on a Monday to Friday kind of basis, right? There's several ways, dozens of ways, I'm sure. But here's just three simple ones that have helped Mandy and I to do this thing called marriage that imitates Christ, glorifies Christ. The first one is that we compliment more than we criticize. We compliment more than we criticize. Every day we make conscious decisions to build up the other person. I have... So what that means is at least twice to three times a week, I, I have to constantly remind myself to tell Mandy. Because it's not that I don't think she's beautiful. I just, I'm, I'm a man and I'm boneheaded and I forget. I forget, right? But what, what, what I had to make, I had to make a conscious decision to compliment her. To be thankful for what she has done. Not after taking the shower, put on the makeup and the cute clothes and the little twirls in her hair. That I don't know how that happens. Uh, not, 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 not that. I'm talking about before that. I'm talking about when the hair is kind of all over the place, right? And I want to I look at my wife in the marriage bed and say, you're lovely. You're lovely. And you know what I need in return? I need her to say, Josh, you're buff today. <laughs> right? That's the only hope I have because I'm not actually going to be ever buff. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, th this is a compliment. I I'm joking, but I'm dead serious, actually. You know, we have to, we have to kind of <laughs> do this mutuality thing back and forth, back and forth. John Gottman, amazing book, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. Read it. Wonderful. It's, it's, I don't even know if it's Christian. It's just wonderful. Okay? He talks about this, this ratio of compliments to criticizing, and he says it should be five to one. And for every five amazing things, sure, there's probably one negative thing. But how often is it this? One to five. Hey, thanks for taking out the trash, but you're doing a terrible job. We have to be much more conscious of our ratio. Am I complimenting her more than I'm criticizing her? Secondly, uh, we use love languages, right? There's a book out. It's been out forever. Uh, we use love languages, these five love languages. And, and my mom, married to my dad for, like, I think it's like 40, 41 years. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, her top, I think, I think if I had to guess, is acts of service. Right, so on Fridays, she works, but my dad happens to have his day off on, on Fridays. And so on Fridays, you know what he does? Every single Friday, every Friday, acts of service. Mops the floor, vacuums the carpet, folds the laundry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Runs errands around town. Because you know what? She sees that. She receives that as love. She receives it. Now, I tried to take that cute little box and plant it into my marriage, and it didn't work, okay? So everybody has different love languages, and Mandy's isn't. Hers is, I'd say, like two or three is acts of service. Number one, gift giving, okay? She loves to be surprised. She loves to receive gifts. She, she loves what, what, just what I'm thinking about her, okay? Now, I'm in seminary. I'm in grad school, so you know what that means? I don't have money, okay? So what that means is that 99-cent Walmart cards and nutrageous uh, Reese's bars are like my savior because those little tiny 99 cent gifts, you know what they show her? Care. 
They show her care. I can't, I can't lavish her with these amazing gifts, but I can show her that I'm thinking about her. Love languages communicate trust, vulnerability, and, and growth. And thirdly, and this is kind of encapsulating all of them, <clears throat> and by no means is this something that I'm good at. Okay, I, I'm not good at it. And I really need God's grace. Okay, so we're learning, Manny and I are learning to operate. We're learning what it means to operate on a grace-based system, not on a work-based system. A grace-based system, not a work one. I can't serve my wife based on whether she's doing a good job of being my wife. This is not how Christ loves us. You see, we have been saved by grace, and by grace alone, there is nothing good that we have done to earn God's grace and love. He has freely given it to us. So why should my wife have to earn my love? If I'm supposed to be like Christ in the church, and he gives it to us without even barely asking, he just gave it to us because of his love, why should I expect that my wife has to do A, B, and C before I'm going to return the favor. The favor system, it doesn't, I'm asking, I don't think it's going to work for anybody. Somebody's going to fall short. So ladies, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, urging you to affirm and support your husband's leadership in the home, even when that leadership is a B minus, and he's not doing that great, and he is missing some of the things that he should be doing. Even in the midst of that, please still affirm him, encourage him. Now, if he's leading your, your family into sin, cut it off hardcore. He has absolutely no right to do that, and you are the primary voice to stop it. But when he's not uh, making the cover of Husband of the Year magazine, it's okay. And please give him grace, not uh, judgment. And the same thing for husbands. If you've got a checklist of things that she's supposed to be doing, don't forget. Christ loved you when you weren't lovable. When things are not quite working out the way you want them to, your command to love stands strong. Marriages that imitate Christ glorify Christ. It's going to be a beautiful picture, a beautiful design of what it means to be in a union between husband and wife. Now, last thing I want to say is that I know that not everybody has a ring on their finger. Okay, I know that there are plenty of single people in the room. Plenty. That's fine. And that's perfectly fine. That's the point is that marriage is not the end all of what it means to be human. It's not. One who must have experienced a spouse walking out on their vows, or you've been the one who's walked out, and your marriage, is, it, it fails. But does that mean that God no longer can use you? Does that mean that God no longer has something for his people? Absolutely not. You see, marriage is not the end of life. You know what the end or goal of life is? Union with him. Not the union between a man and a woman. That's one of the beautiful gifts that we're given. But the ultimate goal is our relationship to Jesus Christ. That is your call that will never, ever, ever go away. Marriage is a gift for some, but not mandatory. Mandatory. God loves and uses all people in all circumstances to bring about his love and mission, and marriage surely isn't a prerequisite of that. So be encouraged, single person. Be encouraged, divorced person. Your relationship to God stands, and it stands strong. Amen?